15. Thanks, Rosie. Can you hear me? That love is all there is, is all we know of love. It is enough. The freight should be proportioned to the groove. Once upon a time, I was a little boy. I was about six years old, and my brother was about eight years old, and we went to stay with my dad. We lived in the week with my mum and my stepdad, and then at weekends and in holidays, we went to stay with my dad in London. Staying with my dad was the best thing. My dad adored us. We adored my dad. My dad adored us to a point of derangement. It was a Friday night. We went to my dad's house. It was exciting because we were going to stay there longer than we usually stayed because it was the holidays. We arrived. We played with our ink stamp sets. We played with our remote control cars. We hung upside down on the beams in Wandsworth Common like spies like us, and we went to bed. And we came down in the morning, and our stepmom was there, and we said, where's dad? And she said, nothing. And my dad's best friend was there, and we said, where's dad? And the best friend said, he's gone. And we said, gone, gone, and he didn't say anything. And then our mum arrived and took us upstairs and sat down on the bed and said, yes, he's gone, gone. I grew up and I became profoundly interested in the way that stories are told. And about two years ago, I had a drink with that man, the best friend, and he told me stories about the circumstances of that departure, real stories, true stories that had been hidden from us, possibly to protect us, possibly to protect my father, possibly to protect the various other people whose stories are woven into this story. And I was very sad, and I left the pub, and I phoned my brother, and I had a little cry, and my brother, as so often says, don't cry. <laughs> he has a delayed emotional reaction. It's about three months after I've cried. He'll ring me and say, I thought about what you said, and then he'll cry. So I was walking down the street, and I visualized very, very strongly, very clearly, three wooden bowls. I'm obsessed with the number three, and I love wood three wooden bowls. In the left-hand bowl were two little brothers, and I thought, I'm going to write that book I've always wanted to write about siblings, about the lateral relationship, about the way that siblings, in this case two brothers, exchange stories, use stories, manipulate stories, remember, misremember, play little battles with stories, inflict little wounds on each other with stories. I'm going to put into that bowl my true feelings about being a brother and a child and the space that opens up when someone is gone. In the right-hand bowl, I thought, I'm going to put a dad, and I'm going to visit upon him something cataclysmic, the loss of his beloved. And in the middle bowl, I thought, I need something very big, something very dark to anchor this triptych, the heavy center of this story. And I thought, I kind of think, I think I know what it might be. And I went home, and I thought, oh, this obsession is kind of hopping and pecking around in my periphery, and I have a some sense of what it's going to be and I went into the garden, I had a glass of wine and unusually in my South London garden a fucking massive crow went Rah! so I said hello crow welcome in so the book is called Grief is a Thing with Feathers and it tells the story as Rosie said of a man whose wife has died and he's left to care for his two boys and a crow arrives that may or may not be imaginary it's a very very short book I think at a clip I could probably give it to you in 15 minutes but I've been asked not to it is like life, very short. It contains prose, poetry, mid-edit manuscripts, jokes, fables, interviews, play scripts, comprehension questions, because I felt that pure prose was a very inappropriate vehicle for a state as emotionally fraught and chaotic as grief. I was greedy. I wanted it all. I wanted high theory and bum jokes. 
I wanted psychoanalysis and Lego. As a reader, I'm greedy. In some sense, the book is a reflection of my reading life. It's a self-portrait of my shelves. I read children's books at nighttime with my children. I read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of submissions because I'm a publisher on my Kindle on the way into work. I discard them. But nevertheless, I'm involved in all these stories. I read biographies at bedtime. I read essays on the bus. My, my working reading life is very, very busy, and I wanted that all. But I didn't want it because of what those things are on their own. I wanted it because of the connections between those things. I'm interested in the relationship between different forms when you move between them. So, for example, John Burningham's Avocado Baby, at any time of day, is a masterpiece. But when you read Avocado Baby, and then 15 minutes later you read an essay by John Berger on Francis Bacon, that too is a masterpiece at any time of day. But what happens when Avocado Baby steps inside John Berger's essay on Francis Bacon? That's the kind of crazy-tasting magic I wanted in my book. It's moving from one to another. It's the exactitude of one thing and the mess of something else. It's the slippery ground and the firm ground. It's taking a reader to the very edge of something and making them feel like, I don't know what this is and I'm not sure I'm very comfortable. And then suddenly, oh, I know exactly what this is and I'm very comfortable. This is my sibling relationship. This is my flat, my grief that this person is talking about. But also the book represents various feelings I have about how to live. For example, I will not grow up. Serious thinking about the state of this broken world, I think, should coexist with play and puns and excruciating tenderness and fragility. I want childhood magic woven into very serious thinking about the complexities of modern life. And I am an arch-sentimentalist, but it is not unexamined sentimentality. I'm pro-choice sentimentality. I weep freely. It's an indulgence carefully chosen. I will not grow up and write a proper book. If writing a proper book means losing the pleasures of the fragmentary and the hybrid form, this book is a love letter to the hybrid form. And as for grief, as for missing people who are gone, dedicating time and emotion to thinking about what that missing is and how that missing relates to the way that you are in love or parenting or working, I refuse to let it lie. Isn't it time you stopped thinking about X and moved on? No. No, 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 no. The thinking is the moving, and it is a howling, living, sorry, which is onwards, not as a train moves forward, but as a plant grows. But the book also reflects, and I'm being honest with you, me having to come to terms with some of my limitations. For example, I'm very, very tired. My beautiful babies don't sleep. I get up at 5 a.m. I couldn't write a proper book if I tried. As a teenager, I felt a, a, a strong tension between writing, music, and art. And I didn't want that tension to be resolved by choosing one, partly because I'm not quite good enough at any of them to do any of them professionally. But I tried this as a graphic novel, and I can't draw well enough. But also, when I do one, I can hear the other. So I wanted to write a form that was a bit musical and was a bit like a series of paintings. Also, I work in publishing. My head is full of other people's stories all the time, most of them very good, so I had to put that all away. And I literally put it away. I cleared my desk and drew things. I always start with drawing things. But also, I have been very obsessed, as I'm sure some of you have been, with crows. When people circulate cat videos at work, I'm like, cats are crap. Crows are the thing. Crows can bodyboard, 
They can play bassoons. They can smoke cigarettes. They can do things with sense of humor and tools that no other animals can do. They're extraordinary things. I even did a, a, an embarrassing thing. I was in the Gower Peninsula, and I thought, well, what I must do is try and get into a crow trance state. So I went out in the middle of the afternoon. There were massive murders of crows doing crazy. They go to Gower to have fun, as I do. And I thought, I'm going to be a crow. And there's these tragic photos of me hopping around on the Gower Peninsula, just thinking about how to be a crow, because I wanted the book to be crow-like. I wanted the, the effects of the book on the reader to be stabbing and jarring and suddenly very beautiful and suddenly very recognizable and then suddenly very, very alien. Like, is it a broken umbrella or is it a bird? I wanted these sorts of feelings to drench the reader as they read. But being foolhardy, I didn't want my crow to be a random visitor. That would violate the terms of inheritance and the nest invasion is about inheritance. And I knew it had to be born of obsession if it was going to be real. So I gave my dad character an unhealthy, if familiar, obsession with the poet Ted Hughes. So immediately the literary character has other literary characters on his shoulders. In the ripeness of his bad breath, he speaks with others' voices. This speaks to me of the mess of inheritance, of the vertical axis, the dangers of that axis. Your parents fuck you up. They may not mean to, but they do and the love of the letter. My imaginary bird is simultaneously unique to me and a bountiful bird of a thousand faces. He is a continuum to be plugged into and interrogated, and the interrogation is mine and yours as a reader. There are Haida myths, African creation tales, Celtic stories, Japanese stories, Scandinavian crows, Glastonbury crows, Hughes's crow, Baskin's crow, Tattoo crows on the guy in front of you at Centre Parks on the slide. Brandon Lee crows, death metal crows. They all choose us. I choose them. I choose him. I couldn't resist. He forced his way in and made perfect sense. His themes time and time again are those of truth-telling. He brings messages. He reveals true identity, true human nature. And for me, what more perfect character to get in and investigate the tragic emblem of familial trauma the motherless child. My crow says, motherless children are pure crow. What could be more ripe, rich, and delicious than a nest where there are motherless babies? I wanted him to haunt and care. Lady in black and Mary Poppins. Analyst and vandal. Darkness and inspiration. And I wanted him to be funny because it shocks me that people fail to see the funny side of a book like Ted Hughes's Crow. Like Beckett, it is nothing if it's not funny. He takes himself a death song or two less seriously than his namesake, and people can argue, have I boulderized Hughes? Have I reanimated Hughes? Is it a love letter to Hughes? Is it a grotesque violation of Ted Hughes? It's not for me to say. I know where I stand. But on Hughes, I've spent a year saying, oh, it's not about Ted Hughes. But in a way, that's prevented me saying what I really do love about Ted Hughes. And for those of you that have read this. Crow is the dark song legend at the center of his outfit, but gosh, he writes well. There's a passage in Winter Pollen where he writes about, as it would happen, a crow, where he says, a crow is the bare-faced bandit thing, the tattered beggarly gypsy thing, the caressing and shaping yet slightly clumsy gesture of the downstroke, the macabre pantomime ghoulishness, and the undertaker sleekness. Whatever you think of Ted Hughes as a man, this is Beautiful writing. Crow comes in at this point and says, I like it. That's me. Thank you very much, Ted. 
But Hughes goes on, vitally, a bookload of such descriptions is immediately rubbish when you look up and see the real thing flying. This is the generosity of spirit, humility, in a way, eccentricity, the ecstatic love of the natural world that makes Hughes very, very relevant and very, very good. We are learning to grieve as we are learning to think or read. In the dark moment, when all becomes rubbish in the face of great pain, true art can briefly unlock or clarify what Hughes calls the enormous importance of things and the utter meaninglessness of things. This is the kind of thing I say to my children, and quite rightly they roll their eyes at me. I say, it's utterly important and utterly meaningless. Uh, okay, Dad. And I say, no, no, it's very, very funny and very, very sad. It can be both. So once upon a time, there was an epigraph. It was a good, clean, permission-cleared epigraph from Harvard University Press that love is all there is, is all we know of love. It is enough. The freight should be proportioned to the groove. And the author had chosen this epigraph for his book because it was his favorite poem. But when the books came back from the printers, someone had vandalized the epigraph. They'd replaced the word love with the word crow. Two little bowls appeared. In the left, the children who said, it was us. We did it just to piss you off and to annoy dad. And it kind of reminds us of the time we had an imaginary crow living with us. In the right-hand bowl is the dad who says, oh, God, I'm sorry, it's probably my fault. I've been obsessed with Ted Hughes and Emily Dickinson. I'm sorry, I'll pay for the damage if I have to. And in the middle, out of the bowl creeps a crow. And his breath smells of rotten raspberries and hedgerows and leather and yeast and leucozade and lubricant on condoms. He's a crow. And he says, it was me. And his voice is part cello, part feedback, part crackly recording of a poet. He says, it was me. All me, 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 me. And I did it because I love these children and I love this man. And this is the life and song of all children and all parents, of poets, dead poets, yet to be born poets. Life is beautiful and always unfinished. Thank you.